The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Moses writes, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in a man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they were children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. The Lord said, I will lie out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animal and creeping things, birds of the heavens behind the sky that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Dear Father, we are back in our story this morning trying to understand what we began to learn last week how the judgment is coming on the earth. Here in Genesis we know that that coming judgment is the flood. We know the story very well romanticized by so many. Yet, Lord, it's a very real issue that is at stake here. Mankind has become wicked. You are a righteous and holy God who cannot sit by and allow wickedness to go unchecked forever. We see here in this passage that you have a response to sin, one that is deep-seated, based in your character. So this morning, Lord, as we work through this passage, I pray that you will help us to see you. Help us not to be distracted by the details in the passage, to get focused on minutiae and, and debates about this or that. Lord, we, we want to see you, your character, to know you here, to understand how you, the Almighty God, have never changed. How you are the same today that you were here in Genesis 6, verse 26. Will your spirit make that clear to us this morning? Will it open up our eyes? We ask the truths of these words of the gospel, even that we see in these words. I pray, Lord, for your help this morning. Jesus' name. I feel like I should start today where I didn't start last week and perhaps where I should have started, and that's by bringing us up to speed a little bit on just where we are in Genesis. And to make sure that you can remember where we're at, I decided to put this slide back up here that I have used many times if you've been here with, with us uh, through the course of the study. You've seen this before. If you're new, it's an important slide to understand. It shows us the structure of Genesis. Remember that the book of Genesis opens with a prologue followed by Ten stories that are there to help Israel understand who they are, where they came from, and who this God is who brought them out of Egypt and is now leading them through the wilderness 
I didn't include the prologue up here because you all know that. That's the creation story in Genesis 1, 1, 2, 3, one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. But after Moses gets past that prologue, he begins these ten stories. And each of the stories that he gives are easy to pick out because each story begins with a, a special Hebrew word called what? Toledot. Okay, that's why I call it the ten Toledots of Genesis. It, we don't really have a corresponding word in translate that word with, and so every time it's used, we have to use the whole phrase to try to make sense out of it, like these are the generations of, or this is the book of, or this is the account of, or the story of, or something like that, and you see that each time one of these new stories begins, so in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4, that first story we read, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, so that first story, what I call Toledo 1, was the story of the heavens and the earth. The purpose of that story was to explain what had happened to the perfect world that God had made back in the prologue, because Israel had kind of figured out, probably through slavery, that the world wasn't perfect anymore. So how did that come to be? What had happened to, to bring all that to an end? Story number one tells us that, and it goes from chapter 2, verse 4, as you can see, all the way to the end of chapter 4. The next story begins in chapter 5, verse 1. And this is the one we started last week, and I'm going to go back to verse 1 just to show it to you. There he begins by saying, this is the book of the generations of Adam. So using all my mad creative skills, I call the second story, the story of Adam's line. Because I don't have any creative skills whatsoever. I'd be glad you're not Jordan. That's one of the titles of my sermon to put on the website. I'll just leave it at that. And you'll notice that this story starts in chapter 5, but doesn't end until chapter 6, verse 8. And if that confuses you, you simply remember that chapter and verse divisions weren't, weren't part of, of the Bible when it was originally written. That was added hundreds, thousands of years later in some cases by people who were trying to make it easy for us to get around. So it's not like Moses is writing Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. That's not what he's doing. And so the stories can kind of be a little weird based on the chapters. This one goes all the way to chapter 6, verse 8. And the purpose of this story is to bridge the gap between Adam and Noah and to explain to us about this coming judgment that we're going to read about in the next story. And we saw that last time in chapter 5 to an extent. It was a genealogy. And the emphasis of the genealogy is obviously to bridge the gap. I mean, if you think about it for a moment, we covered over 1,500 years of history in 32 verses. All right? So we were very much attempting to bridge a gap there in those verses, but, but in the process, we didn't learn some things about the coming judgment, did we not? But we learned that sin has consequences. Every time Moses wrote, and he died, and he died, and he died, we're reminded that the death entered the world through sin, and that it's pervasive, and that all of us will one day face that same end. We also learned, though, that there was salvation in the midst of it, that life is possible through Grace and grace alone. Enoch walked with God. This faith-driven obedience and fellowship characterized his life, and as such, he is shown grace by God and is, not, and is spared from death by God's own divine intervention. And so by the time we're done uh, with that first section there in chapter 5, we, we bridge the gap. But, but there's a second half to the story. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And if the emphasis of the first half is on bridging the gap, the emphasis of the second half is on explaining this judgment that's about to come on the world because of sin. 
by the time we're done with the whole thing, we'll be ready to move in, into the flood story with a good understanding of how we got from Eden to the ark. And that's what, what we're doing right now. Now, before we can look at these things, you need to know something very, very important about these verses that we're about to study this morning. And I want everyone's attention here just for a moment. After this, you don't have to pay attention anymore the rest of the morning, okay? Just right here. Many Old Testament scholars believe that these eight verses that we're about to study this morning are some of the most difficult verses to interpret in the entire Pentateuch. Not just the book of Genesis, but all of the writings of, of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. And the reason they think that is because there are a number of questionable or unclear things to study here in this section, all of which have been debated and studied and written about and argued about at length in some cases for thousands of years. We're talking before Christ was born. The Jews, the rabbis, were arguing about some of the things that are written here. And now, here I am, hoping to cover all of it with you in about 30 minutes. To say that this has been a daunting task this week is a bit of an understatement. And I'm not pointing this out to you because I want your pity. I just simply want you to understand what it is that we're up against this week as we're trying to work through these verses. And I went back and forth on trying to figure out how to approach this. For a while, I was thinking maybe I should you know, expand this into several Sundays and try to address all of the issues here in depth so that you can have a, a good working knowledge of, of what's going on here. But then I thought, well, I'm not sure that would really help if people haven't solved these issues in thousands of years. What am I going to do in three weeks? I don't think it's going to add a whole lot to your understanding. On the flip side, if I try to do it all in one sermon, I was afraid that I would end up jumbling it all too much together so that you missed what was the most important things to understand here for all the things that are difficult to understand. I went back and forth trying to figure out what I was going to do. And finally, what I think, I hope, is the right approach occurs to me. You're, you're all familiar with the saying, right, that you should never sacrifice the important on the altar of the immediate. You heard that saying before, sometimes people say on the altar of the virgin. I don't know who originally said that. I assume that it must have been a parent. This is just can't prove me wrong on this, so we'll go with it. I assume it must have been a parent who was probably, it was a lady, she was standing in the kitchen looking at a sink full of dishes, if it was a guy, maybe he was looking at a yard that needed to be cut or crops that needed to be harvested, and all these things are immediate needs, they're urgent needs that need their attention, Then they look over here and they see their children who are still small, growing up, wanting to play, to sit in their lap, to talk to them, and the realization dawned on them that there will always be dishes will always be crops. There will always be these things that need our immediate attention, but I won't always have my children to tuck in. We never sacrifice the important on the altar of the immediate. Well, in a like manner for our section today, we should never sacrifice the critical on the altar of the questionable. Never sacrifice the critical on the altar of the questionable. While it may be tempting for us to spend our time Focus on those items that are fun to debate, those questionable things that people have argued about for years. None of the items that people like to argue over are critical to a right understanding of the text. In other words, all the, well, the three items that, that people want to debate about, write books about, and earn their PhDs in, none of the, these things affect the main point that Moses is trying to get across. His point here is crystal clear. 
And so while some of the, the other items around it might be a little fuzzy, we want to focus our heart and mind squarely on what it is that Moses is trying to communicate here so that we can learn the lessons that I think Moses is trying to teach us. We will address the questionable things as quickly as I can right off the bat, but I really do want our main focus, our, our final focus, to be on this critical message here in this story. So having piqued your interest in these questionable things, I, I want to get them out of the way right off the bat, okay? Because otherwise you're going to be sitting there wondering about them, wondering what, what in the text is causing people to debate. So let's get them out of the way right off the bat so we can focus on the critical message Moses is trying to communicate. There are three questionable items here in these verses. I'm just going to list them off for you here at once so you can see them in, in question format, okay? Number one, who are the sons of God and the daughters of men? that he talks about in verses 2 and 4. Number two, what does the 120-year limit there in verse 3 refer to? And then number three, who are the Nephilim that Moses talks about in verse 4? Okay, so these are the three questions that people want to debate. Let's just cover them one at a time and get them out of the way. First, who are the sons of God and the daughters of men mentioned here in verses 2 and 4. And there are three main views on this one. I'm going to give them all to you very quickly just so you can be aware of what you hear. And if you wonder why I do this, let me just tell you it's because I don't want you to be ignorant of what you read and run into when you're out and about in the world around you. I want you to know. You may not understand it fully, but I don't want you to be sitting there going, I've never heard that before. No, you've heard it before because I'll make sure it's explained as simply as possible. And if you get it, well, that's just a bonus. Okay? Number one, some people think that the sons of God here refer to fallen angels, and that the daughters of men refer to human women. Okay? Sons of God in this view are fallen angels, and that the daughters of men are just normal human women. The idea is that these angels uh, did, you know, rebelled, whatever, they came down, they took human form, they married human women, and had babies. Okay? This, is, this is the understanding. The reason that people think this is because in the book of Job, the angels there at the beginning are referred to with the same exact phrase, the sons of God. That's how Job refers to the angels. They also think this because in 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 4 and 5, and Jude verses 5 and 6, both of these writers talk about a certain group of angels that, that sinned in a special way and were therefore being punished in a special way. And so the assumption is that they must be referring to Genesis 6 and that this is what these angels have done. However, of the three views I'm going to show you here, this one to me is the least likely of all of them, and I'll give you four reasons why I don't think it's, it's a good view. Number one, just because Job called angels sons of God in his book doesn't necessarily mean that that's how everybody uses that phrase. Okay? Imagine with me for just a moment that uh, some nuclear holocaust occurs, almost everyone on the earth is destroyed, nations are destroyed, there's just a few survivors left. And after a thousand years, there's finally civilization sprouting again on the earth. And some archaeologists are digging around, uh, and they find something in California, a piece of paper, and it says, James Dean is the rebel. That's all it says. And they go, hmm, I wonder what a rebel is. James Dean is obviously a rebel. I don't know who he is either, but clearly this is, you got to figure this out. And a few years pass, and some more archaeologists are digging around in what used to be Boston. And they find a newspaper clipping that talks about, from the 1860s, and it talks about how the southern soldiers are rebels against the federal government. And they go, aha, 
James Dean must have been a southern soldier rebelling against the, the, the federal government at the time. Because, see, this, these people here use the word that way, and he's called a rebel, so therefore they must go together. What's the problem with that? Just, just because one person uses it somewhere doesn't necessarily mean that's always the way the term is used. And just because Job calls the angels the sons of God in his book, he's the only person who does that, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean that every time you see the phrase, it's referring to angels. Okay, there's one reason. Second, neither Peter nor Jude refer to Genesis 6 in their writings. They don't bring it up. They're just talking about a group of angels who did something. Not this. They don't make any reference to this whatsoever. And they probably knew that people argued about this, and they could have given the definitive word and ended all argument. That they don't indicates to me they're probably not talking about this. Third, the idea that angels can, can take human form and marry women and have children seems to go completely against Jesus' words in Mark chapter 12, when he told the Sadducees who had asked a question about people getting married after the resurrection, you know, can that happen? Can people get married once they been uh, raised from the dead? He's like, no, you don't understand. Once, once you've been raised from the dead, you're like the angels. They don't get married nor are they given in marriage. Well, if that's true, then this doesn't seem to make sense. And then finally, God himself, down in verse 3, if you look at your Bible, Paul says to these people, or says about these people, that they're flesh, that they're human. And so taken all together, it seems like quite a stretch to me to argue that the sons of God here are fallen angels. I, I think we need a better option than this. Number two, some people think that the sons of God refer to the male descendants of Seth, and that the daughters of men refer to the female descendants of Cain. Are you following this? Male descendants of Seth, female descendants of Cain. To argue this, you have to assume three things. First, you have to assume that the male descendants of Seth were all or mostly godly men, and that the female descendants of Cain are all or mostly not. <laughs> Ungodly women is what you have to assume they are. Second, you have to assume that the line of Seth and the line of Cain had stayed basically separate for over 1,500 years until now. And then third, you would have to assume that the other children of Adam and Eve don't matter at all. Because they have more kids. Well, uh, if you are listening to the way I'm saying this, you're probably figuring out this isn't my favorite option as well. First of all, I don't think it's wise to assume that all or most of the male descendants of Seth were godly. Any more than I think it's wise or safe to assume that all or most of the female descendants of Cain were ungodly. We don't have any information given. I don't want to assume anything. Second, we're probably not talking about a super large population of people anyway, and so how these two groups would stay completely separate for that long, I don't know. And then third, there are more kids here than just Cain and Seth. And back in chapter 5, verse 4, Moses told us that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. They're around. How many? I don't know. I'm just saying that there are more people than just these two groups, and so I, I don't think we can assume all this, so I don't think this is our best option either. The third option that people often put forward is that the sons of God refer to human rulers or kings, and that the daughters of men just refer to women in general, ladies, girls, women in general. And, and the reason they think this is because, not, not from the scriptures, but because in the ancient world, it was common to refer to rulers or kings in this manner, to, to deify them in some way, to call them sons of God, kind of a, a thing. And maybe what he's describing here is these rulers who are taking many women into their harems. Okay, maybe that's the problem and why God's a little angry with them. Again, though, 
does feel like this is stretching the text farther than we need to in order to make sense of what Moses is doing here. Just because other people did it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what Moses is doing. I, I don't see proof of this in the text, and so I don't really like this option either. And so if I don't like any of the main options, where am I at? How, how do I answer this question? I answer very affirmatively, I don't know. I don't know who they are. And I'm, I'm doing this to be honest with you, and I hope you learn something even from this little exercise, that we don't have to force answers that we're not certain about. It's okay to not know everything about the Bible, particularly in things like this where it doesn't affect anything at all. Whoever they are doesn't matter. What matters is what they do. Moses explains that part. And so that is the critical aspect. Everything else is just a questionable item. The second thing people argue about is this question. What does the 120-year limit in verse 3 here refer to? Look at verse 3. The Lord is speaking. He says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever for his flesh. They shall be 120 years. Now, what, what exactly is he putting a limit on? And for this one, there are two main views. Number one, some people think that he's putting a limit on the number of years that man can live. In other words, before the flood, we saw this last week in Genesis 5, people lived ridiculously long lives, right? They were living for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so maybe part of what the problem is is that with such long lifespans, people have time to perfect their wickedness. I mean, think about it. What do you do after you've been alive for three or four hundred years? Like I've done everything there is to do. I've talked to everyone there is to talk to. Let's see what pulling the ears off a rabbit feels like. Ooh. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's what's wrong with everybody. They just live, they're living too long, so they don't know what to do with themselves, and that's why wickedness is abounding. And so, so to curtail that, God steps in with this pronouncement that man would no longer live any longer than 120 years. So in this view, the limit is on man's lifespan. Now, in favor of this, you have the fact that after the flood, what starts happening? People start living shorter and shorter lives. However, against this view, that takes a really, really long time to happen. And it doesn't seem to be consistent. Just I was curious, like, who's the oldest man on record that we have you know, in recent times? In 1997, a guy in France died. He was 122. So maybe God's pronouncement doesn't always work for everybody. I don't know. Also against this, is that it doesn't seem to really fit the context to talk about in shortening man's life. It, the context is about coming judgment, so I don't think this is the best option. I think number two is probably your best option. Some people think that it's putting a limit on the number of years before he'll bring flood, before he'll bring judgment on the earth. In other words, what he's saying here is a warning. Hey, there's 120 years left, and then we're done. This is this is a I won't put up with this any farther than that. We're going to go that far and no more. To me, this makes complete sense. I think this is the right view. It makes sense in the context that God is limiting how much time is left before judgment comes. The third question, who are the Nephilim? Moses talks about in verse 4. Just in case you're wondering, the word Nephilim here refers to a group of people. It's a group of some kind. Maybe it's a group of people who are related to each other, they're a family, a tribe, like it's talking about the Hatfields or the Cherokee, that kind of idea. Or maybe they're a group of people who are just grouped together because they have similar abilities or traits. Maybe they're like the Olympians or the Seals, that kind of thing. They're similar people, not necessarily related, but they're like each other. Whatever the case, it's some 
kind of group. Now, you've got a prize out Look at your Bible. Look at uh, verse 4 here. How many of you, raise your hand, have a footnote next to the word Nephilim in your Bible? Raise your hand. Okay. I have one. You can see if yours is like mine. Mine says four giants. Okay, you got that? So does that mean then that the Nephilim were a race of giants? Well, maybe, but not necessarily. See, the word in Hebrew here is very uncertain. We know it's being used to refer to a group of people, but what it's describing about them is, is very unclear. And the reason these people are sometimes thought to be giants is not because of what's being said here in Genesis 6, but what's being said about them in the one and only other reference to them in the entire Bible. In Numbers chapter 13, we read the story of the spies who go out to look at the land of Canaan. And when they come back, ten of the spies are like, uh-uh, we can't do it. We cannot take this land. And two of them, Joshua and Caleb, are like, uh-huh, we can take this land. And so they each issue their report to Moses and the people there in Numbers chapter 13. And I'm going to pick up this story of the report in verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who have gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land in which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So obviously these people that the spies see are very tall, particularly compared to the Israelites, and this is where the idea that all the Nephilim are giants, this is where that idea comes from. Well, again, that doesn't necessarily mean that all of the Nephilim are giants, but at least that group was. We really need to stick with the clues that Moses gives us here in the text. And the one and only clue that he gives us is found in this last part of chapter 6, verse 4. He says that these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. That means that these Nephilim were known as mighty warriors or doers of great things. Okay? What kinds of things? I don't know. As a side note, what's fascinating to me, and if this bores you, I'm sorry, but it's interesting to me. What's interesting to me is that he doesn't feel the need to explain any more about them than this. Which means that they must have some knowledge of stories of the past, some shared point of reference that they go, oh, those guys. The guys we heard the stories about, the men of renown, oh, that's who he's referring to. So because he doesn't need to explain any further, because they must have some shared understanding, this is all the information that he gives us about the Nephilim. So who are they? I would leave it exactly where Moses does. They were a group of mighty men who did amazing things. I can't say anything more about it. So there you go. There are all the questionable items with as brief of an explanation as I can give you, all in one nice, neat little package. If you have any further questions, you should go across Wikipedia. Now, let's get, let's get to the critical part. That was sarcasm, for those of you who don't know me. Let's get to the critical part of this message, okay? Because the main point of this passage is not these items that people want to debate. None of those things are central to, to what Moses is getting at. The main point of the passage is to announce and explain God's coming judgment against sin. Say that again. 
The main point is to announce and explain God's coming judgment against sin. And to do this, Moses uses a form of parallelism to drive this point home. You know what parallelism is, right? If you do, shake your head yes, even if you don't know the word. Parallelism is when you say something, one thing, same thing, two different ways, in order to drive home the point or to emphasize it. So I'll give you an example so you can get the point of what I'm trying to get across. The sun was as red as blood, as crimson as a ruby. Now, what am I telling you about the sun in that sentence? That it's red, right? It's very red, okay? It's as red as blood, as crimson as a ruby. I've used parallelism to drive that point home. I said the same thing two different ways so that you would get the point that I'm trying to make. That's exactly what Moses is going to do here in these eight verses. He's going to announce the coming judgment initially here in verses 1 through 4, and then he's going to go back and do the same thing again in verses 5 through 8 with a little more detail to drive this point home. And by doing this, he is emphasizing to us the coming judgment. So look at how he does this in verses 1 through 4. He starts by just setting the stage for us. He says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land, daughters were born to them. That statement is just saying, okay, here you go. So you know where you're at. People are having babies. There's lots of humans. They're multiplying. Okay, so this, is, this is our scene. Here's the first thing he wants you to see, that the sons of God saw something. What did the sons of God see? They saw that the daughters of man were what? Wrong. Not attractive. Even though that's what it says behind The Hebrew word here is the word for good. Now, can you think of any other time in Genesis up to this point where man saw that something was good? Not God. God saw that a lot of things were good, didn't he, in Genesis 1. Can you think of any other time in Genesis up to this point where man saw that something was good? Where was it? That's the tree. Genesis 3. They were standing there before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they saw that it was good for food. Hmm, I wonder if that's coincidental. I guess we'll have to keep going and find out. So they see that the daughters of men were attractive or good, and after they did that, they responded to what they saw. Verse 2 tells us that they took as their wives any they chose. And this may be a statement of polygamy or some other sexual sin, I don't know, whatever it is. It's not presented as a good thing. And so man saw that something was good and he took, again, notice the parallel to Genesis 3. He's drawing our minds back to this. After that, after man responds, God speaks. In verse 3, God says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. And the word abide here should probably be translated as end or strive. It's a difficult word. It just means that he's not going to put up with it forever. I'm not going to just sit around and let this continue on forever. There's going to be a limit. 120 years and we're done with this. But note that at this point, we don't know why he's putting the limit on it, really. He doesn't explain it yet, but this is just, just an initial statement. We, we've got to get to the parallel and we'll understand more. Finally, Moses makes a statement about man. He tells us about these Nephilim that are known for their might. They stand out in the story because of what they can do, because of their abilities. And so Moses 
inexplicably at this moment draws our attention to these people. So we've had a pattern here. Here it is. Man saw something was good. Man responded, took. God spoke with an initial statement of judgment, there's 120 years and I'm done with this. And then man is highlighted at the end, we have the statement about the Nephilim, okay? This is the first half. Does everybody see that? Got it? Hold on to it. Look at the second half now. It starts very similarly, except this time, who sees something? God saw something this time. And what is it that he sees? He sees that the wickedness of man is great in the earth. That every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He sees evil and a lot of it. I mean, this is quite a statement about man here. Notice how he's being described. He's described as being thoroughly wicked to his very core. Evil through and through at this point. This is why judgment is coming. This is the answer to the question we didn't know back in, in verse 3. Man is wicked. It's rampant. It's thorough. It's complete. God's going to judge it. So God saw that man was evil, and now he responds. But notice that the response he gives isn't what we might first expect. In verse 6, Moses tells us that the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. He grieved him to his heart. Some of you may wonder about the statement here that the Lord regretted that he had made man. I mean, how does God regret anything? Isn't he all-knowing? Didn't he know what was going to happen? Isn't he all-powerful? Can't he choose to do or not do, to allow or to not allow anything he wants? So how can an all-knowing, all-powerful God regret something? Well, you need to understand that Moses is attempting to help us understand something about how God feels at this moment. And to prove that to you, you simply need to look at the last word here in verse 6. It's the word what? Heart. Does God have a heart? We're talking about an organ that pumps blood. No. He's referring to the innermost self, the seat of our emotions, of our being. We're talking about humans and becoming our very soul, which the word you would probably use to describe it. And here he says that God's heart was grieved over what he was seeing. And so this verse is showing us that God has emotions and is having an emotional response to the wickedness in front of him. And this word here, regret, is telling us more that, that God is getting ready to act on these emotions. He's about to do something in response to the grief he and so we see God speak in verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. We had an initial statement of judgment before, I'm saying 120 years and I'm done. Now we have a complete statement. He's going to blot them out. That means he's going to wipe the plate clean. All life will be destroyed. He is going to undo creation, destroy the whole thing, and we're almost done, right? Then we get this final statement about man again. This time, though, it's not a group. It's a single individual. It's Noah. It says that Noah found favor 
in the eyes of the Lord. And that word favor here is the Hebrew word for, you want to take a guess, for grace. No grace in the eyes of the Lord. In the midst of this judgment, God is not all wrath. There's mercy. There, there's grace. There's love being shown even in this. And, and though we're going to cheat a little bit, I'll tell you what, we're going to cheat a little bit by looking ahead. Look down at verse 9 and you'll see why. He tells us that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. What's the last statement? Noah walked with God. That means he's like Enoch, the guy we saw last week. And like Enoch, Noah too finds that life comes through grace, not through anything else. And so whereas the Nephilim stood out for their might, and what they could do, and what they had accomplished, Noah stands out not because of what he did, but because of what the Lord did for him. You see the difference in the two? So look at the parallelism now. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Man saw that things were good, so he took, God spoke with an initial statement of judgment, and we get this highlight of the Nephilim. On the flip side, you see that God sees that things are evil. His response is sorrow, is grief. He gives a complete statement of judgment, and then we're left with a statement of hope. Now, what do you learn from this message? Remember, Moses is attempting to emphasize in these verses the coming judgment on sin. But if you look carefully, you will notice that he did not do that, really, by emphasizing how bad man was. He did this through emphasizing the very character of God along the way. For example, this is the first time that we've seen a statement on God's wrath. God's wrath here. It's evidenced by the fact that he's not just going to sit by and let man continue on in sinfulness forever. God is holy, and sin is an offense to him. He hates it. He's going to judge it. He is going to kill all these people in his wrath. Does that make people warm and fuzzy inside? That at all send a, a shiver up your spine to think of God in this way? It does mine. But the fact of the matter is, if God really is who and what he says he is, the just, holy, sovereign God of the universe, not only does he have the right to do this, he has to do it to be consistent with his character. And so by looking at his wrath, we see God here as judged. Scary way to see him. Not only do we see God's wrath, second, we see God's pain. It's an interesting statement that Moses has made here. Though he's angry and planning on bringing judgment, Moses gives us a glimpse into how sin affects the very heart of God. He's grieved over our sin. That's a, that's a strong word, the word grief. If you've never lost anyone close to you, a parent, sibling, a child, a spouse, a close friend. You don't understand what this word is. I've only ever really lost one person I was really close to with my father. When, when uh, it was 11 years ago now, 12, 11 years ago now, he died, it was like 11.30 at night, we get the phone call, total shock. I get the call, I hear the words, and I crumple to the floor, sobbing. And I'm so beside myself that I have to ask Jamie to give me something to do just so I can try to hold myself together. She gave me cows to hold. It was the only thing she had in the middle of the night of the fire. 
That might sound crazy if you've never been through that. But if you've ever really experienced grief, you understand the deep, deep sorrow that afflicts your heart at that moment. And here, Moses has put together for us the most descriptive statement possible in verse 6, that the wickedness and sinfulness of man had grieved God to his very heart. That God feels pain when we sin. Think about that, Christians, believers. He feels pain when we sin. He hurts when we disobey him and rebel against him. And so by looking at God's pain, we see God is a father who knows what it feels like to watch his children rebel against him. But third, we see God's grace in this passage. Because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's not based on anything Noah did, right? The very word grace implies that. If it's grace, it's because you don't deserve it. If you deserve something, what do you get? What is that called? It's called payment. What do you deserve? You should get it. It's your payback. It's your payment for what you did. He doesn't get find payment in the eyes of the Lord. He finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. God's not repaying Noah for anything here. You say, well, wait a minute. He was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, a man who walked with God. Certainly, he deserved grace. Oh, no, 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 no. You've forgotten a very important question, the same question we had asked with Enoch last week. Why did he walk with God? Why was he righteous? Well, the writer of Hebrews, just like with Enoch, is happy to answer that question for us in Hebrews 11 7. He says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes how? By faith. He's letting you know his righteousness isn't his own. He's not walking with God because he's such a good person. He does these things because he believes, because he believed that God was and who, who he said he was, because he had faith. He was shown grace from the Lord, and so by looking at his grace, that's what we see God as now, as our Savior. And so we see God in three ways in these eight verses as judge, as father, Savior, and the truth of the matter is that every single person in the world, every one of us in this room, will one day kneel before him, one of these capacities. One of them. Because God our Father loves us, he sent his own son to die, and to take our judgment on himself in our place, so that if we place our faith in Jesus Christ's death for us on the cross, there we'll, we won't have to stand before God the judge. We'll be saved through God Savior. It comes back to the, to the gospel, to the song we sung to start with today. There was a holy God who was willing to become flesh for us, so that if we placed our faith in him, we would be forgiven of all our sins. And the question before us is the same as it was before Israel when they heard this read to them for the first time. In which capacity will you stand before God? Will you stand before a grieving judge to receive death and judgment, or will you stand before a loving Savior to receive life? The question's never changed, has it? Thousands of years have passed, and the question never changed. 
letting all of us stand here either as recipients of God's grace or as people who are being offered grace this morning through the death of